Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Hello, welcome back to the pod. My name is Josh Peck. This is Curious. Can you believe this? Wow. Yet another week of this podcast. God, I'm having fun. And I can't believe you guys listen. And just thank you. Thank you for being here. How's your week? I hope it's good. Little little wrap up on the week. What's going on? What, 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 what's happening in the world? More World Cup. World Cup hasn't stopped. I know I talked about it last week. I'll talk about it again. I enjoy it. It makes me feel more international. The haircuts are incredible. Um, they're all quite dramatic when uh, they feel they've been fouled in any way. I've never seen such incredible acting in my life than on the, uh, the football pitch, I believe it's called. I think that's what they call the field. I don't know. I don't know terms, but but I enjoy it. I like it. It it feels as though it brings the international community together. And for that, I like it. Politics. I just don't feel smart enough to comment. And I wish more people felt the way I do. <laughs> because I know inherently I'm smarter than other people. Not not a lot, but there's definitely a couple people out there that I have some superior brain power then, and yet they feel comfortable enough to comment. It feels like everyone comments about what's going on, and they rush to Twitter, and they make a well-crafted tweet for or against whatever is going on in the political arena, and then they tweet it. They put their phone down, they take a deep breath, and they give themselves a proverbial pat on the back. Like, well, I said my piece. My work here is done. I wrote the shit out of that. That was 200 characters of pure, biting brilliance. And maybe, just maybe, our president will respond. But more than likely, I will just start a feed of a lot of people that agree with me and some people that don't and vice versa. And it just, I feel in my deepest heart, all this social media commentary on what's going on and the need to immediately comment on even the slightest uh, action is meaningless. (laughs) I mean, God bless. I work in comedy. I consider myself a slightly somewhat funny adjacent person in the in the club of funny, maybe. And I, you know, so I understand the need to feel as though you are staying up on it and you are having biting rhetoric that that comments on the the subtleties and the nuance of every little thing that's going on. But Purely narrating it is meaningless in my small opinion that doesn't matter. That's just my opinion that I'm saying because this is my podcast. I just feel like if you're not actually doing something to change things, then you're just writing a fire tweet. Then you're just getting that ego hit of, God, look how funny I am. Look how smart this tweet was. I don't know. I... It just feels meaningless. But what am I doing? Nothing. I'm talking to you. Up here on my my little audio soapbox. You know what I mean? 
You know what I mean? You know what I mean. Today's episode, Brian Koppelman. Let me tell you about this person because I am a fan. I, I actually listened back to the pod and I feel like I sound like such a fan in this podcast because I, I really am. I love the movie Rounders, which was the first movie he wrote with his partner David. And since then, he's written so many great movies and episodes of television. He is uh, creator of the show Billions on Showtime with, you know, such unknowns as, as Paul Giamatti. No big deal. So Brian crushes it, and he also has a podcast called The Moment, which you should definitely check out. And I've just, I've always been a fan of this guy. As you will hear, we have a bit of a past, and I just love who he is as a creator. I think his work is so smart and good, but more importantly, I just think he's a great dude, and I am a fan of his podcast, and I can't understand, I can't oversell that. You know what I mean? I am a fan. So Brian was nice enough to let me come by his office in New York and interview him for an hour. So I hope you enjoy this. Here's Brian. But yeah, I grew up in the city, but I've been in LA for half my life. And I'm you went I'm a when, convert. When the show happened, it was in LA and so you Yeah. I did a I did a movie for Nickelodeon yeah. when I was twelve called Snow Day. And Chevy Chase was in it yeah. and Chris Elliott and was my friend. You can grab that out of there okay, too, yeah. whatever you want. And I'm fine uh, with it here as long as I'm close enough. Yeah, perfect. Oh, yeah. Love it. And uh and my mom being sort of the wonderful balabusta Jewish mother she is saw that the president of Nickelodeon at the time, this guy, Albie Hecht, took a shine to me. She said, tell him that you love this show, All That, which was the first sketch comedy show for kids. Told him that I loved it. The movie came out eight months later. He called over the weekend and said, listen, the movie's a hit, and I'm flying you and your mom out to California, and you're going to go do this sketch comedy show. And the creator of that created Drake and Josh, and yeah. Uh, that's a, It's a great story, and just amazing to me the way that you've... I mean, when you when you do my podcast, we can talk about this stuff. But the the I can't the, wait. The way no, you're definitely doing it. But the way that you have just found your own path and the thing, and and from have sort of taken the gatekeepers out of it. Right. You have a career the way that you want to have it, and you live this creative life, and 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 you're not you're not dependent on people saying yes to you. Right. Which is an amazing accomplishment for someone who's not primarily a writer. It's right. hard to do. No, you're I, I, you're so right, and thank you. And I mean, besides being a fan of of you, the Dune, and you as a creator, but then finding you in the podcast world and loving that. Like my favorite story is when you talk about how you and David wrote Billions on Spec because you just weren't at the place that you wanted to be, and you weren't willing to sort of wait around for the next right thing to happen. You created it. Well, yeah. I mean, that's been, I think, I think there are all these, I was talking to someone the other day about this. There are, you know, all these various experts throughout our business in particular, and in many businesses, I think, as the world has changed, as all sorts of distribution has become decentralized, as the gatekeepers have actually in the real world less influence. They try to hold on to as much of it as they can for as long as they can. That doesn't make them evil. It just makes them interested in self-preservation. And one of the things that I've noticed 
because I've now been doing this for over 20 years consistently and able to be successful at it, is that when, if you can be clear on the objective that you have, or if you know that what you're interested in is creating something or performing something, the more you can take other decision makers out of it, the better off you are. And so there's this conventional wisdom. This writer was telling me the other day that her agent said to her, um, hey, just go pitch. Don't write on spec. And she said, well, I've already written this script on spec. And they were like, no, no, no one's buying specs now. You go out there and you lie and you say it's a pitch. And I was like, listen, you wrote the thing. Everyone told us there was no need for us to spec billions. We should go pitch it. But what David and I knew was that if we had a powerful piece of material, we could, instead of making it a contest to see would someone buy it, because I agree, perhaps it's easier to get somebody to buy something if there's more air to it, if you're just pitching it, because they can then imagine it in various different right. ways. But I wasn't interested in somebody buying it. It's always nice when someone buys something. I mean, they pay you some money for your time. And you get the announcement, right? Yes. You get a, a mini ego hit. Right. Brian did something. Yeah. And he's, the people... Yeah. yeah, it's great. He's a professional. To use your language, uh, people around me could have a lot of nachis if they want. yes. But here's the thing. It's pride. But what I was interested in was in making something. I was interested in the completion of the whole thing, which was to get to make this show because I saw these characters and I cared about them and the world of it. And I'm not, Dave and I both are not, are not scared to take the risk of our time. Now, part of it is we have a track record so that we know if we spend our time doing it, we're probably going to come up with something that in some way works. But there was still a huge risk in that we could have spent those three or four months writing the thing, not making any money, Everybody passes on it. But what we wanted was the ability to say to people, if you're interested in this, you have to commit to making a pilot or giving it back to us. There's no buying it and developing it. There's no buying it and hiding it away. You have to be in. And so it was worth it for us. Now, listen, this shit's backfired. You know, Josh, you and I met in person when Dave and I had done something similar on a project called The Game. Right, the which Neil we Strauss you to, book. Well, yeah, the Neil Strauss book, right. which Dave and I wanted you to star in. Ah, uh, man. And, you know, you wanted to do it. And yeah. we met, and it was great. Uh, and that was a case where they had a script, and we said, you know what, don't don't pay us some money to rewrite it or whatever. We'll agree to direct it, but you have to, we'll rewrite it for free, and then if you guys like it, you'll greenlight it. And then right. they said they'd greenlight it, and they did, and then they pulled the plug. And so that was a risk of our time and, like, a lot of... um capital because we didn't just meet with you in the end james franco was attached to it and was going to star in it and that was kind of heartbreaking when it fell apart because we'd done a lot but i'll tell you somehow less heartbreaking than selling an idea working on it then someone else owns it and controls it you can't do anything with it and you're sort of thwarted for me look I, i learned a long time ago when i decided i wanted to do this for a living that the most important time in it was the time of creation, right? It's the doing it. It's the acting. It's the performing. Secondary to that is the stuff that comes from it. Right. So if I can put myself in a position where I'm producing work that I care about, I feel very alive in those moments. And that's the whole gig. That's why I do this. The reason, you know, when I was 30, I turned my life upside down was because I wanted the feeling of being alive in the way that doing creative work made me feel alive. And so, yes... I'm not a sainted person and I'm not a Buddha. And so I want material. I'm not good enough to not care about the material possessions. And I don't think you ever will be. Right. No, I don't know if any of us can. It's hard to get to that. Look, I, 
I like being able to pay for my kids to go to college without them having to take loans. Sure. No, I mean, there are things No, it's that, important. Like all this stuff, right? And, and I like the fact that people love the show. That's right. great. But the most important thing remains for me still. Doing the work. That feeling of springing to life in a different way. I mean, you know what it's like when you find the voice of a character, right. when you find the means of expression where that, those moments where you are sort of hyper present, but also in the ether, like somehow tethered, but floating at the same time, right. which is for actors, that moment when it kind of just comes together and you've done all the work, but then you forget all the work and you're just in it. Right. And you're in it with the other person and you guys are creating You're blacked this, out. You're blacked out in the other reality. Right. You're just existing. You're floating. You're here. You're present. You remember your words but you're in this other space. That's the thing that creative people chase. But And I've learned, because of talking around the country and speaking to people, it's not just people who make their living by doing the arts. Like Everybody feels better when, in whatever their job is, they're working at their most creative. Right. They're not thwarted by people saying no or by the constraints of the way things have been done before, but they're like able to reach inside themselves. And if they get that little tingle of excitement, they can chase it. Do you think that, and I'm always interested to to see this, because I've gone through my own evolution of 20 years of acting through the audition process and what have you. I heard someone once say, get over the idea of you going in and killing it. He's like, because that's so fucking self-serving. And it sets up an expectation. It must go this way. And if it doesn't, then it was a failure. He said, a good writer has created a problem when they've written a character and they need someone to solve that problem. So your role is to go in there and either solve that problem or get them closer to what they need. So go in there and show them very quickly that you are not what they want so that they can get closer to what they need or be the dude. Yeah. Auditioning is so, uh, I mean, being on the other side of auditions, I have so much empathy. It's, I feel it's, it's so hard, but but it is amazing. I when wanted you do to ask it, you, but when no. you do it for a period of time, though, yeah, you do realize like um, it is this other thing. It's not yes, come in and be professional and know the, know the words and be ready to do it and right. be ready to take direction and roll with it. But a lot of it is just something in something that the creator of the thing, the writer or the director, recognizes in the way what's essential in you kind of like strikes off of this fictional thing. Right. Just sort of like in the way a tuning fork like tells you the right pitch. It's all about it just happening to um, harmony, harmonize in the yeah. right way and and create the right tone. And it's not something the auditioner can control. Oh. All you can control is doing your thing. And then like I think about it, Maggie Siff who plays the role of Wendy. I mean, she read uh, sitting in her a chair in her living room with her husband who's not an actor reading and her baby crawling around on the floor. And she just basically like said the words as who she, some combination of who she is and who Wendy is. And, you know, because it was so true to what, I guess, this idea, we didn't know it should be Maggie Siff. But the moment we saw it, it was like, well, and a lot of other amazing actors, famous actors, you'd know women came in I'm to sure. read that part. But somehow Maggie Siff just was the part. Right. And, and yes, her craft is excellent and she's prepared for years, but it's much more about something essential in her strikes off of something essential in the nature of the character and creates this other thing. Right. 
You can't calculate that. Which brings me to my question that I, I usually save for the end, but any you know writer, executive producer, director that I, that I interview, I always ask this question, and it's for every brother and sister actor out there. What's the one thing an actor does when they walk into the room where you immediately go, fuck this guy? Like, is there an annoying peccadillo, something people do where you're like, I, I'm not going to, this isn't the guy. And I can give you examples people have given me. Yeah, go ahead. Give me some examples. I'm in a, I'll say, yeah. Give Which me is like examples. not knowing the words. You know, being on book and just the, the performance suffers because they really don't know the words. Be prepared. Right. I mean, we've all taken the time to be prepared. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I come in, I come into it with mostly empathy for actors it's really hard to do the thing you're putting yourself behind the eight ball if you don't know the words look if you're the kind of person who gets nervous not having the sides in front of them have the sides in front of you if it's right. easier for you because otherwise you'll be only thinking about the memorization and you don't right. want to freeze then have the sides in front of you no one's going to penalize you for that but be relatively be familiar with it in some way i think is important i don't yeah i don't think i really have that another buddy of mine said uh my friend danny chun said people that come in and try to be too buddy buddy too conversational take up too much of your time well come in and do your yeah come in and do your work i don't i mean say hello right that's fine you know i don't mind when someone like say hi or like if someone's like oh hey i know josh and he said hi right that's fine too like i get it we all want to make ourselves an impression stand out right and make some sort of an impression don't exaggerate or lie on your i don't like like a list of a hundred special skills that are bullshit i love that we all have that too it's like i know you don't do archery you son of a bitch <laughs> stage fighting like whatever yeah. the come on stuff is french please yeah but you know know it if you're gonna know it uh, no i don't have like i don't think i have like the one annoying thing oh you know just because i'm germaphobic don't unless i stick my hand out to shake your hand that's huge don't shake don't go in just, for the shake just because um because i you know you have to shake 200 hands right and then you're going and you to, can't get sick you got to be up at six you're writing you got the edit come on you're busy you, you got to do your tm for an hour let's just, <laughs> let's just say hello right and then you know let's get tender the, and another thing i'll say is finish the audition like if even if you feel bad about it like go through it get and if someone wants to make adjustments make the adjustments and so many times i've cast somebody a year later for a different part right many over 20 years it's happened constantly where it's like find that tape that 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 woman who came in for knock around guys who was wrong for that thing I, you know what because so like Know that the work, even if it doesn't, even if the part isn't the right thing, every minute you're in there, you are interacting with the people. And you can make an impression by being professional, right. by staying like kind of within yourself, like, you know, by, yes, not trying to like be everybody's best friend. Right. And by hanging in there and doing it. Do yeah, it make five it times if you want. Also, if someone's like, we're done, thanks. I don't mind if someone's like, I have another idea. Can I try one more time? Right. But you have to really have the other idea. Yeah, it can't be the same beat. It, yeah. If you really, if you ask, I will let you go again. But it has to be for a real reason. Well, and I'm interested to know this too, because, you know, like the, uh, this, my acting teacher, this woman, Sharon Chatton, who I love, 
sometimes we'll run a scene two or three times in class and she'll be like, you know, you said that line the same way three times in a row. And what I want to say is, well, it's because I'm dying for your approval because I've done this since <laughs> I was 10 and I'm just a dancing monkey. And it sounded right the first time and I'm trying to emulate that. And her whole thing being a real method teacher is like, it can't be fucking real if it sounds like the first time. So do you, I mean, does that brush you? I mean, sometimes it can you? be. No, because, right. no, listen, if it's a joke... Right. You have to land the joke, right? right. If you it's gotta a hit setup the beat. line, you got to hit the setup line. Right. Don't drop the key word that has to get repeated three time, three sentences later. You know, different actors, what's amazing about making a series now, right, and having three years of this show that we've shot, and so working with hundreds of actors, and many actors have had a lot to do on the show, you know, 20 semi-regulars and regulars, Right. is everyone works differently. Right. Some people need to create just a little window of quiet before they work. Other people need to not think about it and need to talk right up until the moment that someone says action, right? It's people are different. It's all about getting yourself comfortable, your feet under you, comfortable in your own skin. But all of us have different ways to access that. Right. Right. So some of us want to be able to work the whole thing out the night before beat by beat. Right. Some of us need to be right here with you, looking in your eyes to find it together. Right. As long as you come in prepared, meaning you have your words and you know what the scene's about, the rest of it is fine. The rest of it is like, let's all together put on a show. We're all in this to make new discoveries. Right. But the baseline for me is to be prepared. And like the actors on our show, Damian Lewis, Paul Giamatti, Asia Kate Dillon, they're Maggie ready Siff, to go. Dave Costable, they they're not messing ready around. to go. Right. Super prepared. Yeah. We never have had the situation of the people showing up and learning the lines at the blocking rehearsal. It's just not how we do it. Right. Our part in that is we get you the script really early. Which is huge. Because especially in the TV world, it can be you get it that morning. We will never do that. Right. You have the script a week before you're shooting. That's everything. No matter what. Yeah, it is. Right. But if I'm doing that, then your job is if you have issues or questions, call me over the weekend. Because you'll have the script over a weekend. Right. Or call me or email me anytime. But call me in advance. Let's go through me, me and Dave. Call us in advance. Let's talk it through. Right. And then on the day, let's be prepared and know the words and get, be ready to go. Yeah, let's all get home. And that's been the case. Like these guys, because Damien and Paul and Maggie and Malin and Asia from the beginning, all, I mean, Asia starting season two, have all came in so prepped. And I think if Paul and Damien in particular had a different attitude, it could have fucked the whole thing. But both those dudes showed up from the first day from the pilot, just with the whole script memorized and having done tons of research and understanding completely on many levels who their characters are and why they do the things that they do. Right. Which just makes everybody else like, oh, fuck. I better... Yeah, they said you know, the I tone. better show up ready. Right, no fuckery I mean, Michael allowed. Douglas the same way when I made a movie with Michael Douglas. That dude was just new... And he had mono, pages of monologue and he just was ready. Right. He knew it all. Which means the day player is going to be fucking prepared. Oh, That's yeah. That's one of the only things you can do to get me to fire you is to show up and everyone else is ready and prepared and you're not. Have you ever had to do it? I've just had to like say, come on, tomorrow be ready. Yeah, of course. But no, it is. If you, It is the kind of thing that could... You don't write to those people, right? If someone shows up and they're not prepared or their attitude or way is totally different than everybody. If they're making... You know, you got to get everybody making the same show, the same movie. Right. If you have one or two people that just refuse to for whatever reason, you have to... You don't write to them, right? You don't, you don't want the story to go.
go in that direction. I remember I was doing um, an episode of the show Pitch that was on Fox, and it's a Dan Fogelman show, and, and he had created my show, and he's so great, such a such a mensch, as we say. And, and Paris Barclay was directing, who's you know a great in the TV director world. And I remember we're doing this scene, and, and the show was a drama, and I have this beat at the end. I have the last line, the button of the scene, and I improvised a joke at the end. And... The cameraman laughed. And to me, as a guy who comes from comedy, you make the fucking cameraman laugh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it doesn't Not matter. Not easy to do. Not easy to do. And I'm feeling all good. And Paris comes in, he goes, oh, actors are writing the words now, huh? And I go, and he didn't even have to say anything Paris else. Paris so smart too, man. He's Jeez. so smart. And what I realized in that moment was, this is not a comedy. It's a drama. People need to be thinking about what just happened and not have that reprieve of laughter. Because he Paris is building a momentum into the next scene, and I it was so you know illuminating for me. Yeah, there are times Dan Soder's a comedian and he's in our show, and a good friend. And sometimes I will say to Dan at the end of a scene, or Dave and I will say to Dan at the end of a scene, "Hey, if there's a button you want to throw in, do it. We've right. got the scene. Right. We have the scene now. Do you have an idea for a button? He's pretty much the only person who improvises ever, and it's literally just because we'll go, "Hey, dude." Is there a button you got up for that moment? Yeah. And I'll be like, yeah, I have two things I can think of. And we'll go, all right, let's roll a series of takes. Right. But we'll have gotten what we need. We'll have gotten the scene. And then in the editing room, see, most of the time we don't play it. And then sometimes it's great that we have it. Yeah, it's perfect. But yeah, don't improvise on a show that that's not right. the it thing. doesn't call for it. You know, it's funny. I was watching Vincent D'Onofrio actually teaching an acting class recently. So good. He's such a master, man. And he said something so smart, which is that he said, listen – we as the actors are detectives in the sense that there is a hook to every scene and that is what the scene is about. He said, and inherently with good writing, the hook is hidden because if it was obvious, it would be schlocky, you know. Yeah, it's subtext. Yeah, and it's like, can you look deep enough, reread the lines enough, see just the slightest, even if there's a pause or the, a one word that informs you what that character is really feeling. Yeah to attach yourself to. Yeah, the subtext of the scene. And like sometimes it's the actors. I mean, Vincent is a master. He and I have tried to work together a bunch over the years and we'd love to. Um, yeah, searching for what the truth of the scene is really is a lot of what it is. Some actors want to help tell the story in that sort of like macro way. Other actors just want to tell their personal story. It's up to the director or producers, if in television, the director or the showrunner to be aware of what that secret is of the scene right of the arc of the act do you know what i mean right as you're pushing that stuff forward but anything that allows an actor to focus on something other than how do i look is great do you know <laughs> right. what i mean anything that gets you out of self-consciousness into the work of the scene right tips you forward is great so for vincent if that's it that's useful right so what do you think that, I mean, did you, I mean, you've had this incredible sort of journey that was not a straight line towards this in any way. Yeah. So when you look back at yourself and, you know, your adolescence and teen years, was there a storyteller there? Was young Brian a storyteller? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What you're talking about is that I was in the music, I would, I did a bunch of other stuff. I was in the music business and I went to law school at night and I did a lot of other things until I was around 30 years old when Dave and I wrote our first screenplay, Rounders. But, and I often describe my 20s as a time where I was a blocked writer where I couldn't figure out 
how to get this feeling that was in me out somehow, you know. But there were all sorts of markers along the way for me to look at. I was always somebody who could stand in front of a room and talk. I could always communicate in a way that was pretty advanced for my age. What was I could it at always, the dinner table? Was it at holidays? Yeah, or? in any sort of setting. I mean, I, I was... Um, what is Eugene Levy saying, Guffman? I wasn't a classical clown, but I sat right next to him. Right. First of all, I was in every play. Right. I helped direct. I was the assistant director on a lot of plays. I was in them um, in college too. I would, did all that stuff. There were so it was always a part of my life. I just didn't think it was like a career possibility because I didn't think I was an artist. I had this idea that artists were chosen somehow. They were. They had an immutable characteristic that was recognized by everybody right and had to do like with the way they basketball player dress, yeah <laughs> right. the way they dressed the way they carried themselves somebody who could just play the guitar really well at a young age or instantly could sing on key yeah i God didn't given. understand that you could be sort of a regular a more regular person right but still have this artistic this impulse toward creativity toward creating work also, I wasn't the kid who in kindergarten was like, oh, that's the creative kid. He's always got the paints going and he's building blocks, amazing things. But I always memorized movies. Like I loved movies and I would memorize them and I would recite them. And I memorized Saturday Night Live. Like I would do all of Saturday Night Live the week after the show was on before DVRs. Like I would watch it once. Right. And I would basically have all the sketches memorized and I would perform them with my friends and all that stuff. And then in, 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 in high school... I played basketball on the varsity, and my junior year of high school, I was selected to direct this musical. We had at our school every year, one junior would direct the junior musical, but you couldn't play ball. Right. If Wait, what, you, where was this high Long school? Long Island, Friends Academy in Long Island, Baker we, School. Oh, all right. And so we're not talking about, you know, I mean, this is the basketball team at, at Friends Academy. We were eighth in the state of New York. No, come on. I was the worst guy, on the second really? worst guy on the team. All right. We were eighth in the state of New York. And um, yeah, we were great. Two guys. I mean, you know, a couple guys played college ball. But what position? I two was a spot? two guard. Yeah, I can see that. All right. And I still played like every day until ten years ago. I'm 52. I played until I was in my 40s. It's because you like your ACLs, dude. They're. I mean, I fucked my knees up, so all of it's bad. But here's the thing: I was, I had to make this decision, and basketball was so important to me. Even though I wasn't very good on the team, that's the problem with being on a good team. Is I didn't play very much. <laughs> But um, I chose to direct the junior musical, you know, and, and I didn't even think of it as something that I could do with my life. Like I say, real artists were other people. But if you look at it objectively, I was in all the shows. I was the one selected to direct the play. Right. I directed the play. Like there were these markers along the way. Yeah, you were moonlighting I was in as, this uh, shit as in an artist. Way. Right. You know. Did you have like a big, because I know for me growing up, and I think it was the only child type thing, but I had an incredible sort of fantasy life. Like I, was I had more total... just like my friends and I, I would just try to act out. I would try to just be Bill Murray in Stripes. Right. That movie came out, I guess I was 14, and I would just basically take on that persona all the time. Right. I didn't, that's, no, I wasn't like, the way it would manifest itself was more, if I had to write a paper, I would never write the paper the way anybody else wrote it. I would also, I had bad, pretty bad ADHD, so I, I wouldn't turn it on time, and I wouldn't be able to finish it, but like the first two pages of the thing would, object, would be objectively better and different than anybody else's two pages. I knew how to 
use words to evoke a feeling. I was terrible at the research part. I was bad at making supporting arguments. Right. But I was very good at, in a few paragraphs, making you forget you're reading like a student paper and you'd feel like you were in the hands of someone who knew how to tell you a story. I also performed a lot. You know, I did do shows and I would do in spurts comedy. Yeah, I remember I remember in sixth grade we had to write something like a, a one page about our birth. And so, and I opened, and, and it was a very specific format, and I opened with something like, I was born November 10th, 1986, and I was a little jaundiced, but I quickly got over it. And, awesome. and I remember the teacher saying, that deviates from the format. Like, that's not correct. And I was like, but it's a better opener than right. anybody else here has. And uh, even in, yeah, being 12, 13 years old, I'm like, no, no, this is, this is valuable. This is something, this catches people. But I do think it's important to talk about the fact that I didn't get leads in a lot of the shows. I would be asked, like I say, to help stage stuff and direct it. And everybody knew that I knew it was funny. But there were people who were absolutely recognized as other, more talented, gifted. And I was recognized as smart, but not gifted. Right. Not gifted in the, in the arts. And it had a crushing effect on me, I think, in a way that really? I didn't realize at the time. Well, yeah, because I felt suddenly somehow there was an invisible limit that was put on me. Not by my parents, but just the general idea was those people are artists, and, and these people over here are not going to be artists in their, in their life. Because if you were, we would know it already. Something would have right. happened that would have shown it to us. But then there's always those outliers. It's like I can't even like I'm such a fan of Jennifer Lawrence's and I she was recently on Marin's podcast and it's almost like I can't even listen because of how good and clear she has been at such a young age and recognized as a great. Well, it, yeah, some people listen, of course, like Melissa Erica went to my high school and junior, she's younger than I am. My sister's great. And Melissa, when she was eighteen, was cast in My Fair Lady on Broadway, and she's been one of the biggest Broadway stars ever since. Well, she's one in a million, one in 10 million right. talent. She's a talent that's just going to be, you know, she can sing better than anybody and put her on a stage, and she owns it. Right. But that doesn't mean that there are these other people who aren't on a different time horizon. Melissa Errico knew who she was at 14. Right. And was recognized for it. But then there were these other people. Stephen Kunkin, who's on my show, who plays Ari Spiros on Billions in his breakout season this season. He was in our high school, a year younger than Melissa, or two years younger than Melissa, and he was just another guy who acted. <laughs> right. Right. But he's on tons of shows now at Handmaid's Tale and our show, and like the world's going great for him. Slower, longer horizon. You don't you know. know. You he won his Tony when he was like 40, I think, or was nominated for Frost Nixon for a Tony, nominated for Tony. Melissa was nominated for Tony when she was 18 or 19. It's just the way these things, the way these things sort of can go. But the problem is if you believe that other people know where your limitations are. At a certain point, I realized I had to figure it out for myself. And I realized it because I felt like if I finally didn't do the work, it would, this creative spark in me would die. And, or haunt you. Well, but the way I like to think of it is that, like, yes, but the way I like to think of it is if something dies, anything that dies, there's toxicity. I've talked about this on my own podcast, but I feel like that kind of toxicity that's always associated with death bleeds out. And it would have touched the people I loved because I would have turned bitter. And so I would have turned miserable if I didn't try to do this stuff. And I got to a point, I was married and had our first kid, and... I didn't want to be miserable and I didn't want to feel toxic 
I wanted to be hopeful. And so that's what made me decide, well, fuck it. Maybe I'm not, but I have to find out if I am. And the only way to really find out is to fucking do it. Who are you? We know that somewhere in the world, someone downloaded this podcast, but we don't know anything about you. The people who support this show would love to know just a little bit about who is listening. If you have two minutes, it really does only take two minutes. Help us make the show an even better experience for you by telling us more about yourself. Just go to listenerq, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q dot com slash curious and take the short survey. You can also give us direct feedback on the show, which we would love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered into a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Yeah. Two minutes. ListenerQ.com slash curious. That's ListenerQ.com slash curious. Who along those, along the road have been your apostles, be it your wife or a mentor of, of, of some effect? Like, for instance, my wife is... I think one of her greatest qualities is she's so discerning and she just, I think that she could sell her taste because the way in which she looks at things and can craft a picture or interior design, she just like, everything is just perfect to a T. And the fact that she believes in me, even when I don't believe in me, is sometimes enough. Wait, why do you, I mean, are you still at the place where you need someone else to believe? Sometimes, oh fuck but yeah! You're so successful. I'm successful. Yeah, I'm successful. But no, of course. I mean, this is the. But I mean, it's been proven for such a long time that you're you have uh, this series of gifts, right? And that you have refined them and worked at them. I guess so. Thank you. I mean, it's much like whatever you believe in God or the universe or whatever is the only thing. I heard someone say this once. He's like, God's the only one who draws straight with crooked lines. Right. So it's your ability in which, and for me to say, whatever I thought. Does rejection still hurt you? It's a, I'm dealing, I'm, I'm in a very interesting place at 31, Brian. This has been quite the year. Why? It's because I went back to class and I reinvested myself and I said, because I'd had some frustrating moments where it just didn't feel like it was going the way that I had hoped for or what have you, or I wasn't getting that ego, the validation that, that my ego was so begging You weren't for. getting parts that, you weren't getting cast in the kinds of roles you wanted? Yeah. And that frustrated you? Well, I was dealing also with doing things like the whackness and Mean Creek and these things that where I had been invited to the table and then there were big sort of droughts in between where I just felt like, I've had a taste of the career and that I And did you I think you were doing good work in the other things? I thought I was doing as good of work as I could, given the circumstance. Like, right. Like, I think, you know, you were hurt by that one movie. You were hurt by that Colorado movie, whatever that movie Red was. Dawn. Red Dawn hurt you professionally right. in Hollywood. Right. Because the movie wasn't a hit. There's nothing you could... But you have to know, like... Nothing you could have fucking done about that. No, and it also got held for three years that's, because yeah. of MGM. Right. I mean, that I mean, was that's like, to the people who didn't make the game. So, like, there's nothing you could do... I mean, I knew that because then when we wanted to cast you, they were like, well, he's in this movie we're not releasing. Right, of course. Because Dave and I wanted you to be the lead in that movie. But the whackness is such incredibly good work. You know, Thanks. that movie put you on the map for me in a totally different way. Right. No, thank you. And and it's it's so, you know, it's so funny because so much of my interaction in daily life, anyone that knows me, it's Drake and Josh. But especially in New York, I'll get somebody who'll come up to me and be like, Shapiro. Right. I'm like, I love you. Like, you're my guy. But yeah, I mean, it's all like, I suffer too from the fact that because I've been doing this since I'm 10, I feel like I should be, you know, at 31, I feel like an old man, which is stupid and ridiculous. 
but for better or for worse. Yeah, because you're just entering movie star age, really. The next 10 <laughs> yeah. years is when people, like, right, really become movie yeah. stars. I remember, it's so funny, I forget his last name. His name was Alex. He was the former president of Fox Films. Alex and Young. Alex Young. And he... Who looked like a movie star, actually. Gorgeous. Chiseled. Beautiful. And I remember, I think he's, he brought me into his office at like 20, I was 22, a year after the whackness. And he looked at me, he's like, listen, I'm just going to give you advice for the next hour, okay? And I said, okay. He's like, you look like a kid and no one's going to take you seriously until you look like a man. So spend the next 10 years living and don't make your whole life predicated on your success and getting that right thing. He's like, because you look like a baby and you gotta, he's like, men need time to mature and it's usually in their twenties. So don't worry that much. Of course I didn't take his advice and I worried plenty. No, but that's actually, you know, uh, not a bad piece of advice yeah. to have given you and you are, I mean, I'm not, I'm not worried about whether you're going to get those shots. You'll get the shots. Ah, thank you. But you yeah. gotta, you know, but also you should just go make a small movie by yourself. Right. No, I mean, that's the, yeah, that's the thing. You right? gotta do it. You gotta do it. When you're ready to do it. I mean, and the Wackness is still just a great showcase. Had you talked to Thurlby at all? I do, yeah. She was in your movie, in Solitary. Yeah, she was in Solitary, man. She did us a great favor by coming for a, a day to work on that movie with us. Yeah. yeah. I love her. She's great, and she works all the time, and she's like, she's like cool, and I don't know. She, she wears cool clothes. She'd be a great podcast guest for you. Right? I can't believe, I gotta be honest, and I'm interested to hear because I love your podcast so much. But it's different for you in the sense that you can give people jobs, and so I think they're more inclined. <laughs> like, I can't believe how many people have, like you, have said yes to doing this. Have you been amazed at your? Well, network? it's so hard. No, booking a podcast. I mean, we're not. But you not, have them come here. Very difficult to book a podcast. Well, you have it, a studio set up. I was hip enough to be like, no powerful or famous person wants to go anywhere. So I'll I got this little you. mobile kit. No, that's great, and I'll yeah. do that if I have to go to somebody. I. Um, I will if they want to come to me. Yeah, look, I do the podcast just because I love being able to engage in these conversations. They're my favorite. It's one of my favorite ways to spend time is having these conversations. So that's why I do it. I, my rules are probably similar to yours. I won't have anyone on unless I'm really interested in their work or their journey. Right. Something about them has to really strike a chord in me or I'm not interested. So I, as you, I end up saying no to a lot of people. And then, yeah, the people you want, it's really hard to get Michael Stipe to come on your podcast if you're not his friend. <laughs> right. So I can't, so far I haven't been able to get Michael Stipe on the podcast. Man. You could, maybe he's a, you know. That's the mecca, right? Maybe you? he's a Drake and Josh fan. So uh, You never, it's weird how yeah. that's been my golden ticket in some respects. I mean, come on. But uh, Michael Stipe's your, like, the dude. Him and you. a novelist called Har Haruki Murakami. I would like you yeah. or them. I mean, look, Bob Dylan, but I'm not, I'm not insane enough to think I could, that Bob Dylan's going to come on the the podcast and talk to me. Oh, man. Also, I wouldn't even know where to begin. That would be for me because I'm an atheist. Talking to Bob Dylan would be the closest thing I could think of to talking to this idea of God because his words, his his North Star, you know, he's my North Star in many ways. So I don't even know how to begin to approach asking him questions. You yeah. Know? Yeah, where you'd begin. What What do you think has influenced you... I mean, because your dad was in music, and and did you view him as an artist, or you viewed him as a business person? No, as a business. I mean, he was good at helping artists, but I mean, he is. He's still he's alive. Thankfully, I love him. Um, yeah, I would go with him to recording studios, you know, and he would like oversee the session, and he was had great creative instincts. So, 
if a singer's vocal wasn't really honest or if something was weird in the guitar part, he would be great at identifying that and helping everyone get there. But he didn't consider himself. He's never considers himself considered himself an artist. He considered himself a businessman who had really good creative instincts and could help artists become the best version of themselves. But he also, I think, thought of artists as crazy makers, you know? And right. in our home, it would be like, well, they'll break your heart. In the end, they're going to do the crazy thing that they need to do, and you can't count on them. But I don't want to be someone you couldn't count on. Right. You know, I want to be someone you could count on. Yeah, of course. But that was just like an older idea of what it meant to be an artist. So I wrestled with that stuff. The amazing thing was going with him to the recording studio at midnight to watch... Um, a lead singer lay down a vocal and then watch the lead singer's insecurities show up and then watch the moment where the lead singer took flight and then watch the way the producer of the session coaxed the performance out of the singer or when they decided to push stop and just tell jokes for a half an hour right. or when they decided the thing to do was yell at the drummer so that the singer would feel like they weren't the focus so they could do their thing. Like watching all of that from ages 8 to 16 or 17, 100% prepared me to do what I do now without even knowing that, right? right? Understanding all... I mean, that is exactly the same as talking to an actor. It's exactly the same thing as walking onto a set and having to restage a scene because people forgot what the scene was about or because we actually have three hours and the way you guys just blocked the scene... It's going to take six hours because we're going to have to break the coverage up into these pieces. Right. It's and going I'm to kill you. Figure out a way to say, hey, we have to reblock this without freaking people out. Like all that stuff, I instinctively understand how to do because I spent years watching my father and recording. And sessions. you like that. Or you're just okay, you're okay with that it comes with the job description. Oh, I, all that stuff. Well, no, I love being on the floor helping stage a scene. I mean, I don't like if you have to change it around because of time, but I mean, being on the floor with actors figuring out the staging of a scene, that's I mean, that's why you do this, right? You're, I love that if an actor feels like, well, I would get up and walk over here. It's like, well, yeah, go walk over there. And what would you do? Where right. would you stand? And what would you feel? I mean, that's the best. That's great, no? Well, don't you like that stuff? Does that? I love it. I mean, I, I know a lot of great writer-directors who contend with the idea of show running, including so much of the managerial aspect. And like the guy who created Grandfather, Danny Chun, who's incredibly brilliant writer and so talented, I think, and, and this is just me speculating, but I know that his real love, he loved being in the writer's room with the writers. And that at times he just, you know, would say like, the director's got it, I don't need to be on the stage. And like, I respected him for that because I knew that he knew where he was best utilized. And then there's some guys who, and I imagine you're this way and, and you hear of like the, the great showrunners or even just in a small way doing it on Nickelodeon where there was the dude and where like, and everyone sort of orbited around this one guy because you knew that he saw it the whole way and he'd be there on the Look, day we, and in the end. We love having great directors. I, but I, we love our act. Dave and I love our actors. Right. And we want to, we, like the whole thing does have to, the whole thing works in a way because we have a very clear vision of what the show is. Right. The actors count on us having that vision, right? And so we'll show up in rehearsal in the morning so that the actors can look to us if there are questions or moments. And right. so that we can talk about how the scene will be staged. I mean, I want to say to a director, 
and I do empower the directors go, to go do their thing. I want to say, you know, if you see it a certain way, go chase it down. And so they do, and we do. But the, I, none of this, none of the making of the show bothers me. Right. I like all the parts of making the show. I love editing the show. I love being on the floor shooting the show, and I love writing the show. All the parts of it. You're in. This is, but I mean, I worked really hard to put myself in a position to do this. This is what I wanted to do. You right. Know? Do you get? Um, I can't complain about it. It's like a dream. Well, yeah. I mean, listen, you're here. Come on. Right. I mean, do you get um, decision fatigue? Well, you can, but usually for me, that manifests in eating one too many slices of pizza. Oh you know, my god. It doesn't manifest in the work. In the work, I'm able to do what I have to do. I don't. But like, away from the work, I don't get enough sleep and I eat badly. So eating. I have to exercise. That's the coping mechanism for sure. Eating is the only one. Yeah. And exercise is like basketball, but you can't, you know, get ten. I'll guys do soul cycle for, now. Oh, really? You soul yeah, cycle? I guy. like soul cycle. That's a whole cult in and of itself. It's a real too. cult, and I, yeah. I'm happily, I've happily joined the cult. Really. Yeah, you don't like it? No, I'm fine with it. I mean, listen, uh, you know, I got mad at SoulCycle. Listen, I'll go on a rant here. I got mad at SoulCycle because I prepaid for some classes. Yeah. Because it makes it easier to just sign in when you need to. And, you know, I took a break. Three months go by. Oh, no, by. they expire after three months. They expired. And I said, this is fucked. I was like, you took my 150 bucks. I'm like, granted, it was only good for two classes. They tell you right there. <laughs> I was like, but come on. That's literally just to take my money. Uh, they listen. It's, it says it right there. I can't. I'll say. I think SoulCycle is more of a, a good thing. Than no, it is. It is. A bad thing. I really course. like it. Anything that gets people moving is good. D'Onofrio, yes. big SoulCycle guy. I would love to see him in a class. Yeah, crush it. I, I heard he does two a days, but that might just be. Is a rumor. that true? <laughs> yeah. Have you had him on the pod? No, God, I'd love to. Yeah. But I, I went to his house for dinner once because we have the same manager and we, my manager and I go to see a show and I'm working in New York and he's like, you know, I got to go to this dinner and I could take you like you want to go to D'Onofrio's house for dinner. And I'm like, yes, a hundred percent. Yes. He just was lovely. And he had one for, for his kid's school. They did a big fundraiser. So in the silent raffle, he had won the chef from Rayo's to come to his house and cook for 20 people. Fantastic. So I'm like, this is That's what that was? That was the dinner you went that over for? That was the dinner. Great. Like, come on. So you're 30 and you decide to write. Where do you start? Well, luckily, I, well, I, I realized, oh, I have to make this change. I went to Dave, who was attending bar. Amy, my wife, had constantly been encouraging me to do this, had constantly said, like, you're, you're not using your skills in the best way, what you're doing now. You have to do more. You you want to do this other stuff. And then I went to Dave and I was like, who was trying to be a writer and was bartending. And he gave me The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. I did The Artist's Way, right. which is morning pages and all that stuff. And around that time, I walked into a poker club. And, you know, I left the, I lost 750 bucks. But I called Dave and I was like, I found the movie we should write together. And so Amy... My wife cleared out this storage space underneath the apartment we were living in, and Dave and I met every morning at 8, and we wrote rounders, and that gave us a career. And how long would you write every day? Two hours. And Two hours before stop. I went. To, yeah, because I was going to my job. Right. He had just finished bartending. You know, He would get a couple hours of sleep, come meet me, and then go back, sleep, exercise, write, work on his novel or whatever. And the, the deal we made with each other was like, we just won't miss a day, like every day at 8 in the morning. Right. So, and I was in the music business, so the day didn't start in the music business until 10, and I told my boss, I'm going to get here at 10.30, and he was fine with it, and so that was what we did. Rode from 8 to 10, I got to the office by 10.30, I worked way late into the night, but it was fine, because those two hours, I felt so alive, Josh. I felt, 
you know, so much like I'd finally figured out who I really was that everything else could serve. Every other professional thing could just serve getting me to a place where I could do the two hours in the room with Dave, you know? And did you, what was your concept of, or understanding of the rules of screenwriting at that pro, at that time? Limited. Dave had much more of it. Dave taught me the rules as they were. But I would say we've never been people who focused a lot on like a three act structure and inciting event. I know all of it, obviously. Right. From and you say that you're all not these a fan years of, it. of doing it. Well, it's like we all know how to tell a story. Right. If I ask you to tell me a story about some event that happened yesterday, a fight you witnessed between people, whatever it was, you would tell it to me, and it would have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Right. And thinking about that stuff too much for me, the way I want to work. It doesn't, it doesn't help. Yes, you got to start your story, make it interesting. But if, if you just think about making the thing fascinating, compelling, engaging, you're naturally going to start inciting event. What does it mean? Just start the thing. Right. Something starts it. The match hits the thing. Right. So I don't need to think of it in those terms. I'm just telling a story. And I'm trying to tell the story in a way that's going to keep you wanting to know what happens. Did you... Did you guys just talk about it first, or did you immediately? No, a lot start of research. Writing? Well, research. Okay, and so, that's everything, right? For for the kind of stuff we write, you just have to research enough till you feel you have authority over the material. Right. For some people, it's five minutes. For others, it's a hundred hours, but or hundreds of hours. We did a lot of research because this world of the underground New York poker scene, we wanted to just fully understand. So I read a lot of books, spent a lot of time playing cards, writing. The, you know, Dave and I would write down what people said. Then. Then, yeah, we outlined because we wanted to understand the story we were telling. And we made up a rule right from the beginning, which was let's outline so we have a roadmap, but let's be completely free to deviate from the outline the moment we get a better idea. Right. So the outline is great for when you're stuck. When you're stuck, it's, well, what did we say we were going to do? Okay, let's just write those scenes. Right. But if you're going along and you're like, actually, this doesn't feel like where the sh thing should go, it would, these guys would do this instead. Right from the beginning, we were like, well, let's just write that thing. We can always come back to this. Right. We can always get back on the map, on the road. But if we want to go take a dirt road and go off to the side, like we'll go do that thing if we feel like that's the better way to get to our destination. So we outlined, then we, then we started writing scenes. The outlining took a long time. And that's the bitch of it, right? I mean, it always is. Because you're troubleshooting everything. Outlining sucks. Yeah, it You sucks. have to do it. In and a then way. hopefully, if you've done it right, writing the words is joyous. Yeah, like Solitary Man, I didn't outline, and it was... Um, I had like ideas and I would kind of outline a little bit ahead, but I didn't really outline and I was stuck for a long time because I didn't do the work ahead of time. I had to figure it out while I was in it. It's worth it to sit there and grind and do the work and what, ahead of time. What's the dynamic with you and David? Is one guy on the, on the laptop or? We write separately. Right. We outline together. Either of us can type when we're outlining. And then when we write the scenes, we've just divided the script in half. Right. I'll take half the scene. But not beginning and end. It's like you write the first scene, I'll write the second scene, you write the third and fourth because they go together. I'll write the fifth, sixth, and seventh. You, you know, And then we'll just write them separately, combine them in a master document, and then one of us will go first rewriting, and then the other guy will rewrite. And do you ever have to really campaign for something that the other person is adamant that it's they're not? I mean, if you have to campaign, it's probably sucky. <laughs> right. You yeah, know what I mean? We're not, the the, the two of us, I will say, because we've been best friends our whole lives and because of the way we do what we do, Neither of us ever think the other guy is looking to, like, um, get more of their stuff in. Or get <laughs> right. We're, all I want is for Dave to write a great thing so I don't have to do more work. And all he wants is for me to write a good thing. Right. So he doesn't. Like, we're very much – it's more likely we'll prop up something. You know, I'll, 
I'll find something Dave wrote and he'll be like, I think that kind of sucks. And I'll be like, no, dude, that's good. If we just do this, that'll work. You know, it's rare that we have to campaign for something. I mean, it happens, but it's usually it means the idea is not right. Like neither of us have the right idea. Right. And then we'll just try and find the third thing. And did you ever expect that Rounders especially, because I always, Rounders is one of those movies to me that I know any guy my age and older and maybe younger, like it's always, this is how the set of events goes. You know, Rounders, but fucking great movie. Great movie. Yeah. Because it's like they want to emphatically say, like, it was a great movie that not as many people saw that they should, but it's lived on. It's had this this amazing life, man. And, you know, when we were writing it, the movie we were thinking of a lot was Diner, which for us was that movie, which was a movie that guys like us, and mostly this was about dudes, not, you know, at the time, like, what we were thinking about was... We want to write a movie for guys like us to quote the way we quoted Diner. Right. Where all we would do is walk around, m- memorize Diner, would throw quotes, and we just wanted our movie to be something that, like The Princess Bride or Diner or these movies where, where people memorized them and quoted them. And so that's what happened. You know, it became that. And that's everything we'd hoped to get out of it. Right. And the fact that it wasn't a hit at the time, I don't, I don't think we expected it to be a hit at the time. What we thought was that we'd made something that could live. And so the fact that it's over 20 years later and people still watch it obsessively and ask me about it on Twitter constantly is fucking awesome. Man. Yeah. Okay. So I only have like two more questions. Yes. So I, I, you know, I'm recently married, just got married last year. And what I love about your podcast and is how you talk about your wife and sort of your family life and how yes. it's truly sort of rooted you and anchored you. And first I'd love to know what it's like. Cause your wife's a, a writer director She's a novelist, well, yeah. and a novelist. Like what's that dynamic? Like, cause I'm so glad that my wife isn't in the business it, because she won't indulge me in my neuroses. Sure. And, but you know, I just would love to hear more of that. Well, look, I, I think it's the most important thing. Luckiest thing is that I met Amy when I did and we got married young and I, we were so young that it was kind of lucky. I can't really ascribe particular skill. You know, if someone wants to hear, my podcast, that episode with Amy, is really incredible, and people really write letters to me about it all the time. Yeah, because if she's such a deep, gifted person, you know, the two of us have always just known that our family was cent- the central thing. Everything else works around it. We have two kids; they're twenty-two and eighteen, and yeah, marrying someone who's truly my very best friend and my favorite person to spend time with was just the luckiest and best thing. The fact that Amy's a writer is only great. First of all, she she does write movies and TV, but she's a novelist. She was a novelist primarily. I don't know, you know, we grew up together. Like, we got, we were together from when she was 22 and I was 25. You're young, but not quite as young. So we kind of like grew into this all together. Right. Together we kind of were like, well, we're both going to take the risk to be writers and so i love that about her i I wouldn't want her to be doing any other thing and her novels are great right and coming home having kids after a day like i imagine especially like that time before you wrote the spec for billions and you're i'm projecting but perhaps you were frustrated or like wondering what's next was sort of the family life a healthy distraction from oh i mean look yeah but i'm i i'm almost i'm not a superstitious person, but I'm almost superstitious about really talking about how great all that is. Because, yeah, man, I mean, my 
the four of us just get along incredibly well. And yeah. so, and they, but they, and obviously my son was always very keyed in, has always been keyed in to my career. So I wouldn't hide, you know, when Dave and I got fired by Martin Scorsese and Runner Runner was a bomb, I wasn't trying to pre- present as though that weren't the case. Right. I was like, okay, well, look, in life, sometimes things don't go well, but all you can do is like try really hard to do the next thing. Right. And I would share that because I wasn't walking around like these motherfuckers in Hollywood. It was like, hey, why, we made a bad movie and this one project didn't work out. Right. But we have a good idea and we're going to work really hard to try to make this thing happen. And so I would talk about it, not in a way that would make my kids scared or not anything like that. Them. Right. Not put it on them or make my problems their problems. Right. But not run from it. So I'm also presenting like, hey, life is perfect and there are no bumps along the way. Right. Like I would let my son would listen. My daughter just wasn't as interested, though always open to being a part of it. And they're both writers, and they're both amazing writers. But when I would, any business calls I had or whatever, like Sammy would just hang in and be a part of it and hear it. Right. And I was always happy to do that. The other thing is, Josh, that the great thing about being a screenwriter and the great thing about this show happening when my kids were a little older is, I mean... The, so screenwriter, yeah, when we wrote Ocean's 13, we all went to L.A. And then when I'm on set, I'm working crazy hours. But the majority of my life as a screenwriter was like walking my daughter to school, walking through Central Park to my office, writing with Dave for seven, eight hours, and then walking home and being there for dinner. Yeah, being a guy. So a guy. I was able to be in or- have a really pretty regular life. And then lucky enough that we'd made enough movies that I had a real career and I had you know, we didn't have to worry about making rent. Yeah, I knew that like I would be able to keep my apartment probably. Like right. so I was lucky enough that it all worked for this period of time. Yes, there were really years that were difficult. Like not getting movies made sucks. Having a putting everything you have into a movie and having it bomb is an awful feeling. <laughs> sure. But as long as I had something exciting like one, as long as I have my family, so I can go home and be really interested in what Anna or Sammy or Amy did that day. Right. I really cared about Real. Anna having to make a speech at school or Sam writing a paper. Real life. I would be really engaged in that 100%, right? Right. Well, that's amazing because you're then not focused on this other bullshit. But also, like then, as you know, I had this routine where I would do morning pages and I would meditate and I would take long walks. And all of that stuff just sets you up to be able to do the work that right. you care about. And finding a way to produce this work while being a good, fa- a good parent like um once i started getting that figured out then i had a baseline where i knew i wasn't gonna fall below it right and and as someone i i love says like eventually the good and the bad start looking exactly the same because they're impermanent you know they come and go well that's for sure true now most importantly you're gonna go to vine too well what's going on with vine too i don't know i'm not in on the ground floor are you doing it (laughs) no it's fucked Look, the reason, oh, well, maybe I'll cut this out. Don't cut it out. Do it. The reason why Vine, in my opinion, didn't work was because they resented the creators, the people that were the biggest on the platform, and they didn't bring us in until it was too late, and then inevitably when they did, it was already in a free fall. So now all I've heard is Vine 2 is being created, and I've asked friends and people that were big on the platform, like, has anyone called you and said, like, hey, would love to get some feedback? They haven't called you to say No, not a thing. And it's not that I want a piece of it or any of that. It's just like, why can't we all be a part of this thing and build it together and, like, learn from what just happened? 
So did, I don't know. Did it falling apart affect your life? No, not at all. I mean, this whole... So you were able to migrate people to YouTube and other places, right? YouTube, and YouTube is the only place where you can actually monetize it immediately. But it's built, yeah, this social media career, which I didn't expect and could never have, you know, uh, predicted. But I remember my agent called me, Shaney at UTA, who's the best. And she was like, she saw like the first 10 vines. She's like, what the fuck is this? And I was like, what? And she's like... Here I am trying to sell you as a serious actor, the thing you want most in life, and you're being a schmuck in your car. And she was much more delicate and sweet with what she said. And I said, you know, Shaney, I said, I don't know if this is good or bad. I said, but I know that thousands of people having a reaction to this immediately is good. And I got to go towards this because, as you said, otherwise I'm at the mercy of the gatekeepers. Yeah. And I... I can make this and instantly upload it and the power's in my hands. And so that's sort of what I've been drawn to over the last few years. No, it's brilliant what you did on there. I mean, for me, it was a total accident that I had all these people watching my vines. They weren't nearly as many as you had, but I and had a anyone, lot of watching it. Anyone who doesn't know, you were giving six-second screen, screenwriting tips. I was doing this thing, six-second screenwriting lessons, but the point of which was no one can teach you to write a screenplay. I mean, it was all about giving yourself permission to do the work. And yeah, I ended up, they made it a vine editor's pick at one point so i got like 60 million loops right which for someone who didn't really do it was a lot of course you know what i mean even for someone that does it that ain't bad right come on it was a lot of loops to have and it was funny because i was 20 years older than anybody on the platform (laughs) right well and you did you did do the one dad move where you held the camera a little close to your face which i loved sure (laughs) that was perfect well, yeah, we can't all be Josh Peck. <laughs> well, listen, that's the new title for my uh, podcast. Yeah, we can't all be Josh Peck. We can't Beck. all be Josh Peck. That's pretty good. <laughs> I love it. Thank hey, man. you, man. My pleasure. You're Thanks the best. Thank you. All right, that was it. Brian Koppelman, listen to his pod. The Moment, uh, watch Billions, and everything that Brian does from here on out, just watch it, enjoy it. Tell your friends about it. Subscribe. Just do stuff. You know what I mean? Anyway, have a great week, guys. I love you. I miss you. Follow me on social media for all my political tweets. <laughs> oh, man. What am I saying? You guys are the best. I hope you are all having a great day. And take it easy on yourselves. You know, I know we all, we're all ambitious. We all want to crush it and hustle. Because we all just saw like an Instagram post where we felt like someone's doing it better than us, living a cooler, more awesome life, and they're hustling harder, and whatever we're doing, it's not enough, but you know what? It's enough. You're enough. Just know that Uncle Josh thinks that you're the bomb.com. So take that and drink it down, because it goes down smooth. I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. All right, guys, love you. See you next week.